0: Uh, Merry, Christmas. Merry Christmas I, I actually can 't believe that it 's the day before Christmas. This year has just kind of flown uh, i don 't know if it has flown for you, but it has flown for me and We are tomorrow, Christmas Day, but we get to celebrate on Christmas Eve with you, and we get to celebrate with you twice. Uh, So uh, you're here with us uh, for morning service, those that are here in the congregation and those that are with us online. And this evening, we're going to also get another opportunity to uh, worship with one another and to celebrate with one another for our Christmas Eve service. Um, That will start at 5 p.m. this evening. We would welcome you back. it's a time where we sing it's a time where you'll hear the reading of the story you'll hear the uh, preaching um, through the message regarding christmas it's a time just to be able to gather together just before you start opening those presents and doing all those things i i love christmas time i mean there are some special times in the christian um, calendar Of course, there is Easter, Resurrection Sunday, where we worship. uh, The fact that Christ died, he was buried, he rose again, and victoriously we get a chance to celebrate then. We get a chance to celebrate at Thanksgiving, one of my favorite holidays, because good food, of course, but also being able to thank God for everything that he's done for us in this life. But there's something about Christmas. Uh, reminding ourselves of the second person in the Trinity taking on human flesh and coming here to live among us, to walk with us, to die for us, to rise victoriously for us. But we celebrate his birth here uh, today. There's a passage of scripture that is very well known um, from Isaiah. It says this, For unto us is born this day a child. A child is born. And to us a son is given and the government shall be upon his shoulders and his name shall be called wonderful counselor mighty god everlasting father the prince of peace and of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end and that is this that's the king that we celebrate now that's the king that we celebrate this wonderful counselor this mighty god this everlasting father this Prince of Peace. Well, let me pray for all of us as we begin our service. Oh, one last announcement. I'm sorry. Um, so we're here. We had no Sunday school this Sunday. We won't have any Sunday school next Sunday. We'll have worship service that will start at 1030 uh, next Sunday. And then, of course, be back here tonight at 5 p.m. Let's pray. <laughs> Father, I love hearing the, the children in the background. Uh, Father, nothing tells you of the health of a church to be able to see uh, young people um, being there. Lord, I praise you for that. I praise you for uh, young people that are going to come up here and sing in a little bit, Father, uh, using the gifts that you've given them to praise you and to honor you. Lord, I thank you for that. Lord, I thank you for the awesome privilege that we have to come and worship you there are believers around this world that are going to be worshiping you today some of them are going to have their lives threatened to do it we don't have to worry about that so help us to worship well help us to honor you and help us to praise your son for all that he's done thank you lord jesus for the life you live thank you for the death that you died thank you for the fact that you rose victoriously And thank you for the fact that you're seated right now next to your Father, praying for us, interceding for us. Help us to worship you well today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.
1: to
2: Will you join me in prayer? Oh, gracious Heavenly Father, how majestic is your name in all the earth. From the lips of infants and children, you, O oh Lord, you yourself, have called forth praise of your name. Who are we, Lord, that we're humans, that you should even pay attention to us or care for us or love us. But Father, I am so in awe of the fact that you chose to have your son be born in humanity that we might hear a call in our wilderness to repent of our sins and to be reborn into your son's spirit that we might have life everlasting with you, and that we might know your victory over sin, and that we might know how to love each other as you have loved us. Oh, Father in heaven, gracious Father, who has given us so much through your children that you have given to us as friends, through your adoption of us as children, when we did not deserve to be adopted. Father, thank you for all you've done in this church. Thank you for the miracles that you've provided in healing. Thank you for the miracles you've provided in getting people to turn from their sins and coming back to you. And during this Christmas season, Lord, we thank you for the love you've shown to us and the gifts that you've showered on us. As you've said, you've given us gifts of all kind as you send it into heaven to be king over all, priest over all, Lord over all. Father in heaven, help us to know each day how much you love us. Help us to know what you want us to do this day. Help us to celebrate this Christmas in your word and with your passion and with your love for others. Help us to remember that you yourself brought a lonely child into your arms, held him and told your own disciples that unless we became like that child, we were not gonna enter into the kingdom of heaven. Oh Lord, you gave us that sign. You gave us that message. Father, help us this day to remember it now. And we ask these things in Jesus' name amen Amen. reading from Philippians chapter 2 verses 5 through 11 in your relationships with one another have the same mindset as Christ Jesus who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage rather he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man
3: all right if you have children that uh, have not gone for junior church they are welcome to do that and i'd like you to turn in your bibles to the book of philippians chapter 2 for our discussion this morning philippians chapter 2. so uh, last sunday morning we had a meeting after the service with uh, a number of uh, parents in our church family and uh, had a discussion about children's ministry and something that we're going to continue with One of the things that uh, as an elder board we wanted to share with you is that we will be looking in this new year at hiring a children's ministry director. So we wanted you to be aware of that. And if there is any interest in uh, serving in that capacity, uh, your resume can be given to Christina Naley or you can mail it to admin at thechapelnj.org. Okay, so any questions about that, please feel free to seek out one of the pastoral team members, one of the elders, and we'll be glad to uh, talk with you about that so i went down to visit uh, some family members this week for actually it was like a 24-hour period and while i was traveling home i was uh, traveling on route 287 yesterday in the morning I'd say it's about 11 30 and i had listened to traffic reports from the day before like well okay what wh- what's going to be the peak season of travel and the peak season of travel happens to be exactly the time when i'm driving home and i'm thinking all right this is probably Really stupid. Okay. And as I go on the Route 287, I realized, wow, the traffic was really building up. And I, I'm 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 driving in the middle lane at a, a normal rate of speed. And I have cars go flying by me and I start seeing brake lights out in front of me. And in the third lane, with everything happening at full speed, two cars pull over. And as I'm driving by, I see one person getting out and running back towards the other car. And this was, looked like a pretty agitated situation, okay? And I thought to myself, right, we're in the midst of this season. People are probably likely going to pick up a gift or to a family member's house. And you end up with these uh, rather ridiculous expressions of our sinful human nature, right? This thing called road rage this anger this this feeling that we have that don't mess with me all right? this is my life don't mess with my life and so we see that all around us and we're reminded by that kind of an illustration by that kind of experience that we have issues We as humanity are people that are broken, desperately in need of help. We are so quick to uh, express our personal desires, irregardless of the expense of that to the people that are important to us or to the people that live around us. So the question I wanna ask this morning is how does the example of Christ in what we celebrate in this Christmas season? How does the example of Christ help us to get out of the mess that is so typical and to live a life that honors and glorifies God? And is that even likely or possible? How does the example of Christ help us? Well, we could look at this from two angles. As we come into the Christmas season, I think all of us are aware that there are historical narrative accounts of the birth of Christ that are recorded in the gospels. They essentially tell us what happened with some theology mixed in. Some of the statements are rather pregnant and poignant, right? But most of that is telling us kind of the story that most of us are rather familiar with if you've attended church around the Christmas season uh, growing up or in your current life experience. We also find statements about the birth of Christ in the epistles. Sometimes they're very on the face, sometimes they're somewhat veiled, the discussion that comes up in Philippians 2 is an extended discussion of the coming of Jesus that talks about why it happened rather than what happened. Okay, so the focus is on what, is the, what difference does the season of Christmas make in my life? Yes, I get more time off. Yes, I get to spend time with family. Yes, I get to give gifts to people, and, or I anticipate gifts, and I get this feeling, right? And here's the sad truth. That feeling is pretty much gone, right? By the time the kids have the, have the gifts open and everything's caught, all of that stuff, Christmas Eve, all the celebrations that are great, I participate in all of them. But the truth is that they cannot sustain life change for me. Apart from me understanding what lies behind this story called Christmas. And so this morning, I wanna look at Philippians chapter two, and I wanna set the context of this book just very quickly and then see how Paul discusses the coming of Christ, how that, that move, that shift of God in flesh from heaven to earth, how does that affect me? Does that in any way change me? Does it, does it inform my daily life? So the context of the book is essentially this. It is a church with largely good relationships, but it has a little bit of a mix of relational tension. There, If you go back to chapter one and verse 15, Paul says some are preaching Christ out of envy and strife, meaning some are doing the right thing, but for the wrong reason. The motivation in their heart for serving Christ is ill-directed, it's it's, it's misformed, and it needs to be corrected. And so Paul writes in Philippians to this rather extended discussion of Christmas with the focus not on the specific event. He does not talk about the manger. He doesn't talk about the shepherds. He doesn't talk about the sheep. He doesn't talk about any of those things. He talks specifically about the person of Jesus Christ. And he talks about the person of Jesus Christ in the context of his move From this exalted place in heaven to this humble place on earth, ultimately to the cross. And the question that we need to ask this morning is, how does that move influence my life? Paul talks about it as a means of bringing correction. He cites Christ as an example to confront, to correct, and to inspire changed behavior. So how do we move beyond The divisions, the selfishness, the pettiness, the constant injury, the tendency to tit for tat. How do we get past those natural tendencies? How do we grow to a place where that's not the norm, but the life of Christ is the norm? And so what Paul's going to do is take the coming of Jesus with a focus on his indescribable sacrifice, and he's going to use it to teach us how we can better live well together, how we can move to a place of harmony in our relationships and delight in our relationships rather than the deep brokenness that is far too common as brought out in the illustration from Route 287. So let's first look at the directive that he gives in verses 3 to 5. I'm just going to Kind of hit this one quick he says this do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit and i'm going to call, i'm going to call selfish ambition and conceit unlearned tendencies okay and what i mean is we all Naturally, know how to care more about ourselves than others. That's part of our brokenness. That's part of our fallenness. That's part of our sinfulness that the word of God aims to correct. So he corrects a naturally occurring tendency to value myself above others, to look out for my own interest rather than the interest of others. Instead, he says... Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Verse five, have this attitude in yourselves, which was in Christ Jesus. So what is Paul saying? Paul's saying you have a natural tendency, unlearned. it's, It's just part of being human in our brokenness and in our sinfulness. And then you have the example of Christ who in in a in in a shocking level of humility shows us how to value others above ourselves by properly understanding what really happens on the day that we celebrate christmas what what is it that we're looking back to what actually transpired what significant truths emerge and to clarify that he, he he talks about this idea of having this attitude of christ amongst you and it's fascinating the way he says this This is not a value that is to be pursued in isolation. Meaning it's not a mental shift. It is an ethical shift. It's a change in how we live. It's a change in what we value. And so, and it's also interesting that he says, this is not something for you individually, but this is a mindset that is to be valued among yourselves. It is a corporate or relational value that Paul is encouraging. So in verse five, when he says, have this attitude in yourselves, that's in the plural, so that this attitude is to dominate us corporately, not just individually. Again, I understand that if it's not something that we hold to individually, it will not become a part of who we are corporately, but Paul's directive is not given so that you can have a better life individually. His directive is given so that the church can more accurately and consistently reflect the attitude of Christ to a needy world, okay? So the sermon that Paul is giving here is not primarily about self-improvement, how to have a happier life for you now. No, he's talking about the life of the church corporately, it's witness to a watching world, okay? I I think it's important that we understand that distinction Because if I make my personal improvement, the goal of my life, I will miss the relationship that God has called me into in this larger picture called the body of Christ. So when Paul launches into this expose of Christmas from a theological perspective, he has in mind our corporate life together, not our individual lives in isolation. Okay, and I think it's important that we make that distinction. So we find the directive, then secondly, we find this. We find the example. So three to five tells us what what, what he's kind of correcting, what he's desiring. Verses six and following point to the example of Jesus as the quintessential model of what it is to value and prefer others above yourself. And here's what I'm going to tell you this morning. Paul's confronting unlearned tendencies by encouraging us to adopt learned tendencies. Okay, so my selfishness needs to be confronted by the humility that is so essential and so visible in the life and coming of Jesus. Okay, so verse six is then where we're going to start. So five, have this attitude in yourselves that was in Christ, and the question that we ought to pose at that point is, what was the attitude that Christ had that Paul wants us to value in our personal experience and in our personal lives? So let's begin with three observations. Verse six, talking about Christ, he's had the attitude that was in Christ, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or clung to for personal benefit. That's the kind of the essence of this, okay? So what's the first thought that comes out in this text that Paul's kind of gonna highlight to help us to understand what Christ is actually doing? The first thought is this. He was very God of very God. Okay, he was very God of very God. And here's the way verse six says it who though he was in the form of God. And one of the things we need to clarify is this. When we think of forms, I think we tend to think in terms of models, okay? I have an old 1953 truck that I kind of play around with, okay? I have a model of that truck, okay? And sometimes we think in terms of this, that that, 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 that model is a form in the shape of that truck. And there's a sense in which that's true, but that's not the idea of the word form that's used here. Okay, the idea of the word form that's used here in this original Greek context is the idea of an exact representation or essential nature. It's not that Jesus was similar to God, it's that he was very God. Okay, and it's for that reason then when you go back to Matthew chapter 1 and you find the angels announcing the birth of Christ, what do they say? His name shall be called Emmanuel, which means what? God with us or God in the midst. Okay, so the angels as they proclaimed understood that what was happening was a significant miracle, a significant occurrence that Jesus was in fact very God. And one of the questions that comes up, if you study through church history, you realize that there were were debates along the way about the true nature of Jesus, okay? One of the things that kind of cements our understanding of the true nature of Christ is this text, because it's very likely that Paul is citing what you and I might think of as a catechism. Uh, Most of you probably have sung the doxology, right? It's that brief doctrinal statement about the person of Christ. Okay, and there's, so what's going on? Paul is sharing something that is probably broadly known and broadly accepted amongst the churches, either in the form of a familiar catechism or a familiar song that captured essential truth about Jesus, particularly about his nature. So he was very God. And here's what you'll find as you read through the New Testament, particularly the Gospel of John, you find a couple of things about the nature of Christ that is highlighted. One is his pre-existence. John chapter 1, verse 1 says, In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Speaking prior to creation, there is this existence of the person of Christ. Colossians 1:16. All things were created by him Christ, and he is before all things. Okay, so the New Testament writers consistently focus on the true nature of Christ, that he is God, come in human form. So the first thought is, he was very God. Secondly, he became human. So the second half of verse 6, it says even though he existed in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. And the idea there is something that you cling to because you want the personal benefit of it. The idea is divine prerogatives, all that went along with being God from eternity past, that Christ was not clinging to that, even though he was in fact God. And, and, And it's interesting, verse six says, who though he was God, and the idea there is in the imperfect tense, so what it means is he had been God, he remains God, but then comes to take on something he never had been before, humanity. Okay, and the significance of that step will come to in a few minutes. Jesus talks about the glory that he had with with the Father from the beginning in verses six and seven here this is the the true heart of this text although being god he took on human form second half of verse six says that he did not cling to divine prerogatives he did not insist on his rights but essentially temporarily set some of that function aside so that he could come in the form of human flesh for a very significant and important purpose And there's a beauty in this. Verse seven says this, instead of clinging to his rights, and you can understand this in the context, right? Paul's talking with people that are clinging to their rights, to their significance, to their importance, in contrast to and to the damage of others. When he talks about Jesus, he says, he did not cling to his own rights, but he freely emptied himself. He poured himself out. He gave up the divine prerogatives and came in the form of a human being he does not insist on or grasp at his rights for personal advantage verse 7 then says this but instead he emptied himself the idea of this simply theologically is he, he made himself nothing in comparison to what he always had been he accepted a form of humanity in which he would be substantively and substantially different than he had ever been before, a God-man. And this is a, 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 not something that I feel like I can explain to you in full adequacy, I just can declare to you this simple truth, that when Jesus walked among us, it was God walking amongst us in human flesh because he willingly set aside the function of divine attributes, and verse seven says that he took on the form of a servant. That literally is telling you how he empties himself, okay? He takes on the form of a servant, which is very different than being what? Than being God, the one who was over all, the one who created all, the one who was the divine sovereign over all that he has made. Revelation 4.11 says, as a result of creation, he is worthy of honor and glory and praise. But he takes on the form of a servant. Let me give you this definition of servant. A servant is one deprived of basic human rights. Okay, in the ancient world, that would be clearly understood. In our culture, I think that's something that we have to kind of reach back and understand because we don't live in a world where slavery is practiced in America right but in the ancient world they would freely understand when jesus took on the form of a servant it meant that he gave up rights to self-governance he put himself under authority he came to do what his father had directed that he would do he was deprived of basic human rights and became one who fully served god and then verse 7 says this it says he was born in the likeness of men. This is the most amazing statement. You know, in the ancient world, the Greco-Roman world, they could never conceive of God in flesh, God serving. But that is the significant and substantial claim of this text. He became one of us. God took on limitations of humility, of being needy, of being hungry, of being tired, of being thirsty of experiencing pain of fear in the garden of gethsemane and ultimately of death itself that is an astonishing package of things that christ is leaving behind and then embracing a fascinating statement he was born in human likeness John 1:14 says it this way. It says, the word God, very God became flesh and dwelt among us. And John says, we saw his glory. So they, they watched the human Christ. They watched God veiled in flesh, but they saw him doing God things, right? And probably one of the most substantial God things that Jesus does in his human experience. And I'll just mention two of them. One is when they're on the Sea of Galilee, And the boat is threatened by waves, and the disciples go into a panic, and they wake Jesus up, don't you care about us? And he gets up and he speaks to the storm. And immediately the Bible says there was calm. The the storm became total peace. During the storm, the text tells us that the disciples were afraid. When the storm calms at the word of Christ, it says they are terrified, which is the exact opposite of what you would expect. What did they see? And here's the question they asked to each other. They looked at each other and said, what kind of man is this? And watch what happens. That even the wind and the sea obeys him. And the answer to the question is what? He's the God man. And the disciples in watching the work of Christ are beginning to grasp the fullness of the one that they are following, the one who called them. They, they realize that he's not just a man. He exercises divine prerogatives. He has divine supernatural power. And the Bible tells us clearly that Christ is operating in the power of the spirit to do all of those things, to fasten anything. The other experience that happens for the disciples, John chapter 11, with the raising of Lazarus from the dead. Totally unexpected but he exercises authority as God in human flesh over the very life and existence of a human being. And he calls Lazarus back from the dead. He was very dead. And the disciples are just constantly stepping back. And they'll later say things like this, we beheld his glory. Glory as of the only one from the Father, only begotten, only one coming in flesh, full of grace and truth as they watched christ they saw god but they saw god in human form they saw god needy thirsty fearing all kinds of emotions that christ is exposed to as a result of coming to bear the price for our sin my professor of systematic theology in seminary uh, had a way that he would refer to this doctrine of the incarnation. God showing up in human flesh, this miracle that astonishes and amazes and captures. He said, remaining what he, Christ, had always been, God. He became what he never had been, man, ever so, to remain. Okay, I want you to let that truth set. What happens at Christmas? God dawns human flesh, but he does it not just to say, check that out, or what do you think of that? Not one miracle of Christ was ever done simply to say, look what I can do. It was always done to express his true identity so that the disciples would know that God had come for them in human flesh to do something for them that they could never accomplish for themselves. You know, we sing a song during the Christmas season written by John Wesley called Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Most of you have sung it. Most of you have no idea what you're singing when you sing it, but that's okay. You're still proclaiming truth. Here's what the text says. It says, veiled in flesh the Godhead see. Hail incarnate deity, pleased with men or pleased as men with men to dwell. Jesus, our Emmanuel, God with us, God in the midst to do something for us that we could never do for ourselves. This is the beauty of Christmas. He was God. He came in flesh, veiled in flesh, hidden in flesh, covered in flesh. The question is why? Why did God leave? The beauty of heaven in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. To take on flesh. Was it just to show? Was it simply to give us an inspiring holiday? Folks, do you realize that in many churches and liberal churches in America, the story of Christmas is taught as an inspirational story of selflessness. Folks, if that's all it is for you, it's going to wear off. And you're going to go back to the Route 287 in your life and become yourself again. It will never transform you. The truth of Christmas is meant to bring hope, to bring transformation, life change to the power of God's spirit. Why did Christ come? Was it simply to move me, to inspire me, to give me the beauty of this season? Was it that? And my answer is, I hope not, because it wears off real fast. Want the lights down, you want to shift gears and move on, right? That's just our experience because we're so exhausted by all we've been through. Verse eight tells us why he came. It says, and being found in human form. It's a fascinating way to say it, isn't it? And being found amongst humanity in human form, what happened? He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Folks, if you don't understand this, Forget the celebration of Christmas. This is the heart, this is the meaning, this is the message of the season that we are celebrating. He willingly became a sacrifice in his attitude and, in his, and, and his attitude and his amazing love for us enabled this transition, this move from heaven to earth to bear the cross, to bear the shame, to pay the price. And, and, and I love the way this, this verse moves along. And being found in human form, touchable, John 1 says, hearable, seeable, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. As you read through the gospel accounts of the end of Christ's life, the other end of the story, right? Because the story obviously has to begin with his birth. God comes in human flesh through normal means, through all the limitations that you and I have. But at the end, he, he ends his life in a way that is very different than what we expect, even death on a cross. He surrendered without hesitation to the cruelest, brutal death and became a curse for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. I want you to meditate on that for a second, to think about that for a moment. Without hesitation, the Son of God surrendered to the cruelest, most brutal form of death in the ancient world. And here's what the Bible says a number of times throughout the, kind of the course of the Bible storyline. It says, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Okay, And the idea is this that the one who hangs on a tree like the cross is one who is bearing a curse, either their own or he stands in that place on the cross to bear someone else's sin. Okay, one of the things that we know, having kind of read through the, the, the life of Christ, we find that he is sinless. We also find that his crucifixion is part of a divine plan, not a human plan. Jesus says to his disciples, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down. And I find that to be one of the most astonishing intentions of divinity. That God came in flesh and intended, did not take a risk, did not take a chance, intended to go to Calvary's cross for people like you and I. Even death on a cross this past summer, I, it was at the end of June. It was, I think it was the weekend of July 4th. I was driving home from uh, Harleysville, Pennsylvania, where my family lives. And I was on uh, Ridge Road, which drives, it's about an eight-mile run beside Lake Nakanixson in uh, the area of Quakertown, kind of west of Quakertown. It's a beautiful lake. And I, I was kind of cruising down through that road. And it kinda, when I came around the corner, so there's... I think there's four times that there are streams that flow into Lake Knott and Essentially, they feed the lake and keep its water level high. And I came, as I come around the one corner, sweeping corner, see a bridge way down the road, I saw a lot of uh, ambulance, uh, police, uh, traffic slowing way down. Uh, and I thought to myself, wow, I wonder, wonder what happened. When I got onto the overpass, so I think it's Tonkin stream that comes into Lake Nakanixin, Uh I saw rescue boats kind of circling in the water, obviously uh, an attempt at a rescue. And uh, I thought to myself, well, that's, that's kind of sad. I was probably a month later, I thought, "I gotta, I want to look up that story. I'm kind of curious about what happened. Right, because it was solemn. I I looked at the newspaper the next day, and or I'm sorry, when I looked at this story online and looked at the picture of the bridge and all of the police equipment. The strange part of the picture is that my truck was the one passing by. Just kind of like, I wonder what happened. Started uh, researching, looking into the story, and found that a man named Marvin Fernandez had gone. 20, I think he was 20-some years old, going fishing with a friend and two of their little kids. He had decided that to catch a couple more fish, they were going to take them home, do a fish fry when they get home. And uh, as the, he and these two boys walked up the, the edge of this Tonkin River that feeds into Lake Naka Nixon, and two of the boys slipped, he knew they didn't swim, they fell into the water, he tried to help them, and he realized they weren't going to make it he is a known non swimmer himself so he jumps into the lake rescues the boys and succumbs to the water himself now i don't know about you but when i read a story like that here's, in my mind i want to know what was that guy like and as you read into the story a little bit you find that he was known as a guy that would be willing to do anything to help someone it's the way he lived his life and that's a heartbreaking story. I was, I was deeply moved as I read that story by the, the, the willingness to knowing he couldn't swim, to jump in and do what he had to do to rescue the lives of those children. I thought that's, that's pretty remarkable. When you peel back the skin of that story, here's, here's what you realize. You realize that Mr. Fernandez didn't wake up that morning saying I'm gonna do something heroic and amazing today. When he jumped in the water he never anticipated that it would be over his head and that he would succumb during the rescue of those two boys so what did he do he heroically and i don't please please understand how i say this he heroically laid his life down for the rescue of others he took a risk here's what i want you to realize jesus christ did not come to take a risk Jesus Christ came to lay down his life. Jesus Christ took on human flesh so that in that human flesh, he could bear the consequence of our sin and rescue us from it. He did it for people of known character, of known severe disability morally. And yet he loved us and laid down his life for us. And all of that was part of this sovereign divine plan. Matthew or Mark chapter 10, verse 45, Jesus extrapolates on his coming. He says, for the son of man did not come. That the whole Christmas story is wrapped up in that statement. The son of man did not come to be served, but to serve. And that's what I mean by not to risk. He came with a plan, with a purpose. And he came to serve by giving his life as a ransom for many. He laid down his life in human flesh so that you and I could be rescued from our sin. First Peter 2 says it in this way. It says, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might live to righteousness. Why? By his wounds, I am healed. He stands in my place. Every blow that he takes shouldn't have fallen on me, but it falls on him. The perfect, sinless Son of God in human form. The Lamb of God that John 1 says came to take away the sins of the world. John would later say, Greater love has no one than this, than that a man would lay down his life for his friends. And you know what Jesus Christ did? He endeared himself to humanity and then he died for us. He bore the consequence of our sin, though we were undeserving, though it was unmerited. aims to change our destiny. So by way of application, just these simple thoughts. These accounts are not written, the Christmas accounts, nor the extrapolations of the Christmas accounts in Philippians and 1 John and the book of Romans are not written to provoke our emotions. They're not written to inspire us. They're written to confront us and to change us. And as we sing in one of our songs, they are written to cause us to bow down and worship for this is your God. And folks, I know this is this is kind of like heavier topic, right? But there's a glory in this. If you would meditate on this, if you would go and read this text, this could change your life. And it will change your eternal destiny when you come to realize and to believe and to understand what Christ has done for you. So here, here, here's, my, here's my simple observation. Paul says to this church, have this mind in you that was in Christ. Then he lays out the mind of Christ so that we have an understanding of the kind of selfless sacrifice he's calling for. But here's the truth. In terms of magnitude, is Paul asking me to do exactly what Jesus did? And is it even possible for me to do what Jesus did? I think the answer is clearly no. What is he doing then? He's holding up the example of Christ who went from here to here. And what is he asking of us? To move from here to here. So why do we sing about the work of Christ moving from heaven to earth, ultimately to death on a cross, the lowest possible termination point? Why does that happen? It happens so that you and I can be forgiven and made right with God. But it also was picked up by Paul, not only as the fact of redemption, but also as a call to a Christ-like life. You wanna get over problems in your life? You wanna get over struggles in your marriage? You wanna get over struggles with your neighbors, with your family? Have the mind of Christ. And he's not asking you to go from here to here. He's telling you that's what he did and that is meant to encourage you to take this small step that god is asking you to take today does that make sense there's a difference in magnitude he doesn't say do what i did i mean he does but we understand that that's not what he means he's not asking us to go and die for others i mean he would certainly call for that kind of sacrifice and willingness but he's really talking in the context of, get over these trivial struggles and, and, and trivial selfishness and demanding life on my terms in magnitude. Look at what Christ did. Then you will find the capacity to do what he's asking you to do, okay? So Christ is the greater example. You and I are the lesser Christ, okay? If I can say it in that way, and I say that very carefully theologically. 1 Peter 2, 21, it says, Christ suffered for you, leaving an example for you to follow. Okay, so he came from heaven to earth to suffer on the cross, and he did that to leave, and he, it'll change your life. It'll change your eternal destiny when you realize that Christ has paid the full price of your sin and that you can come to him empty, free from religion, free from personal effort. You can be forgiven and saved, changed. That's the hope of Christmas. So selfless service is inspired and motivated by his example. So what, here's, here's what I want to say to you. Don't simply admire Jesus. Okay, you, when you read through the Gospels, here's something you're going to learn. Nobody ever has a neutral response to Jesus. The responses to Jesus throughout the Gospels are always, always polarized. Either they loved him and followed him, or they hated him and wanted to kill him. Ultimately, those are the two responses that people bring to Jesus. Jesus is not someone that you can say, well, I just simply kind of like him. It's admirable. admirable. That's a false gospel, folks. It's not the purpose of this text. This text is written to change your life at the deepest level because you understand what he did for you. And it then draws out of you this very beautiful and very glorious life of obedience and life of selfless sacrifice one of the things I would say to you this morning is I think think this is true. I think selfless people are happy people, right? Selfless people are happy people. People that are all bound up in their lives and their own concerns don't tend to be happy people. We sacrifice it. So here's one of the questions we ask. If God is calling me to a life of selflessness, if he's calling me to prefer others above myself as he does back in verse three and four, Here's my, my question. Okay, well, what's in there for me? <laughs> right? That's our natural tendency. Here's, here's what's so, so beautiful as you unpack this text, right? Because this text ends by saying, therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him a name above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. So there's this very glorious and happy ending ultimately, Right? And, 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 and it's interesting, in, in John chapter 13, Jesus says, I have left you an example so that you would do as I did, and then he says in verse 17, if you know these things, to live a selfless life, to live a humble life, to care for others above yourself, if you, if you, if you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. <laughs> Folks, what does that mean? It means the path to happiness is the path that moves downward, not the path of self-exaltation. The path that will change your life is not you trying to have your best life now. It will be you pouring yourself out in selfless service like Jesus. And Jesus says, if you do that, what's the context? The context is God takes on a towel and washes the feet of his disciples because none of them would and he looks at his disciples after washing their feet and says, you will be blessed if you do this. How much happiness do I sacrifice on the altar of self-honor and selfishness? I think the answer is a lot. The happy people I know are people who live a selfless life. They're committed to the well-being and goodness and growth of others. May God help us to adopt that understanding of the Christmas season, that Christ intends to change us, not only by saving us, but also by leaving us a powerful example. And the last thing I'll say to you this morning is this. As a result of the cross, salvation is by grace. Every world religion has a leader that points to eternal life, that teaches a path to eternal life, that gives you rules, rules to follow to get to eternal life, what you must do to be right with God. That's what religion does. Biblical Christianity is distinct. Because of Christmas, there is good news. Jesus did not teach a way. Jesus is the way. John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. These are the words of Christ. Christ. Perhaps you're here this morning and you think that you're not so bad that you need a savior. You may think to yourself, I can earn my way. I have the moral resources to live my life as I should. I think I can be saved by my own effort. Salvation by works. If that's where you are this morning, you face two dangers. Two dangers. One is that you actually succeed in being better than the people around you. And if you do keep the rules, your life will tend to be marked by pride by disdain, by judgmentalism, and you will become unbearable. The alternative is that you sincerely try, but fail. And if I fail in trying to become the person that God wants me to be, apart from His help, apart from the work of Christ, my life will be marked by fear and insecurity. Conscious of my failures, I will be deprived of the hope that I was so desperately longing for. Folks for you this morning. I have good news. The gospel says that my standing with God is rooted in the accomplishments of his son, Jesus Christ. That makes me humble and grateful, confident but never arrogant. And the apostle Paul summarizes the Christmas story in one amazing verse. He says, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. I'm like, okay, that's pretty succinct. So what is, what is Christmas about? Christ Jesus selflessly came into the world to save sinners. Paul says, of whom I am the worst of all. You know, Paul, Paul was riddled with this issue of pride. And when he met Christ, he was finally broken. And he came to realize that his hope was found in the story of Christmas. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am least of all. Would you bow your heads with me this morning? As we bow our heads this morning, I, just, I want you just to take a quick moment to think of the season that we are in and the true beauty of it that is most clearly expressed through the work of Christ. If you've never trusted Christ, if you've been on the treadmill of religious performance, trying to make it happen, trying to find hope, trying to find peace, but you realize in the honesty of your privacy when you lie down in bed at night that you're just a broken sinner in need of a Savior, Uh, I want you to know this morning there is hope for you through Christ. That if you've never trusted him, I would encourage you in the quietness of your heart right now, simply to say, God, I've tried so hard. And either it has made me arrogant and proud, or it has caused me to know and sense my true brokenness and inadequacy. But I believe this morning that Jesus Christ, your son, came in flesh so that he could hang on a cross to bear the consequence of my sin, so that I could be forgiven and set free. And Father, my prayer this morning is that you would open the eyes of some here this morning. They would see the true glory of Christmas is bound up in God in flesh, bearing their sin on Calvary's cross, giving them hope of eternal life. Jesus, thank you for your example. And I pray that we, by your grace, even in this day, would live that example for your glory and for a watching world. And to pray these blessings in the beautiful name of our Savior Jesus and all God's people said amen let's stand together as we sing our closing song
1: i
0: Jesus we thank you this season Lord that you came to this earth to a manger throne to reign for us for eternity and now you're at your father's right hand God thank you for um, just the passage this morning in the uh, the, just um, thinking on the fact that you came to this earth and you emptied yourself so that you could be our example our friend and our Savior And God, we just ask that uh, this Christmas season, which is not lasting much longer, (laughs) Father, um, just help us to really meditate on these things and cherish the love that you provide for us and that you sustain us with. So bless us as we go, and uh, we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Merry Christmas, everybody.